A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The New Statesman. As we're recording this, Israeli troops are massed on the edge of Gaza ahead of an expected ground assault. Meanwhile, Israel has carried out an airstrike on a mosque in the West Bank, claiming it was targeting an underground terror compound. The cover of this week's New Statesman magazine asks if Israel is about to face a war on three fronts, in Gaza, the West Bank and southern Lebanon, and what that would mean for the region and beyond. I'm Katie Stallard, and you're listening to the New Statesman podcast. With me to discuss all this is Bruce Hoffman, Senior Fellow for Counterterrorism and Homeland Security at the Council on Foreign Relations and a professor at Georgetown University, where he was until recently director of the Center for Jewish Civilization. Bruce, thanks so much for joining me. Of course. Let me start with acknowledging how, how fast events here have been developing and and that they may have developed further by the time you hear this podcast. So as we're recording this now on Monday, the 23rd of October, can you give us a sense of, of where we are now? What are the key developments that, that you're paying attention to and what are you particularly focused on right now? The main focus, I think, for everyone are the 360,000 reservists that Israel has called up, which is only 40,000 fewer than were called up for the 1973 Yom Kippur War, that have been massed at the border with northern Gaza for now just about two weeks. There's several questions. The first question is when the Israelis are going. And of course, President Biden made a historical unprecedented trip to Israel in the midst of this conflict, uh, in part to urge the Israelis to slow down its uh, ground force invasion, in part to ensure that it's able to minimize to the greatest extent possible the civilian casualties in such a densely populated packed area, despite the fact that almost 700,000 Gazans supposedly have left Gaza City and gone to the south per the Israel Defense Forces' repeated warnings. And then I think the big question is what's going on on the northern frontier. Almost since this conflict uh, crisis began, there have been artillery and rocket exchanges uh, between Hezbollah and the Israel Defense Forces. Uh, Last weekend, the Deputy Secretary General of Hezbollah, Naim Qassam, had said that Hezbollah will not be swayed or persuaded by calls for restraint and will do whatever it thinks is necessary. And I think we're all very worried that history is poised to repeat itself because, of course, in one of the previous iterations of these clashes between Israel and Hamas in Gaza in 2006, 
when in what was then an unprecedented surprise operation when Hamas terrorists basically tunneled their way beneath the fence and popped up into the middle of an Israel Defense Forces, an IDF encampment, and I believe killed two soldiers and kidnapped a third, a Gilad Shalit, as Israel and Hamas were engaged in fighting in Gaza. Hezbollah came across the border, killed and dragged the bodies across of, of two Israeli sergeants. And this precipitated a war that lasted over a month for 34 days, in fact, between Hezbollah and Israel, where northern Israel was subjected to sustained rocket and missile fire. We have seen over this past weekend reports here in the U.S., where, where both you and I are, reports that the U.S. has been encouraging, urging, choose your language, Israel to think about holding off on the ground invasion to try to get more hostages out. Do you think there is any suggestion that Israel will not launch a ground assault or any suggestion that they will be prepared to meaningfully defer it? Is Do you see this, I guess, as, a, as more when than if that the ground attack is going to is going to go ahead definitely when and that's a product of the fact that so much has happened in the past 2 weeks it's it's easy to lose sight of exactly what happened on October 7th and the impact it had on Israel more Jews were killed that day than at any time since the holocaust as president biden has said I think it's 20 times as many proportionally as israelis were killed on October 7th as american fatalities on uh, September 11th, 2001. So one way or the other, I think Israel is going, and indeed every Israeli leader has talked about the inability to return to the status quo, a status quo when Hamas remained in place and intact in Gaza. So I think Israel has abandoned what the strategy that it embraced for a decade and a half, which was mowing the grass, where periodically there'd be these crises and there'd be these clashes. Uh, reluctantly, the IDF would go into Gaza on the ground, would try to destroy as, as much Hamas weaponry as they could, would try to kill as many of the leaders and the foot soldiers as they could, and then would leave. I think we're in a different place now. The question, I think, is timing. Now, the United States and President Biden have urged Israel not to engage in Lebanon, not to do anything that would threaten now a, a crisis that would engulf the region and not just southern Israel and, and, and Gaza. You know, From my perspective, that remains to be seen. I mean, one of Israel's key imperatives right now is to recreate its deterrent capability. And from that perspective, it may be in Israel's calculus that that's best achieved by a preemptive attack on Hezbollah's positions in southern Lebanon, where these rockets, of course, are pointed at Israel, where people are arguing that it could be a rocket exchange that then escalates. I mean, Israel could be tempted just to take all those out or at least attempt to do so and then go into Gaza, which is not, I think, along the lines. I mean, it's somewhat counterintuitive given everything that we're hearing, but I think that's entirely plausible. And the one thing we haven't talked about, you mentioned in your introduction, is, of course, what happens on the West Bank. And I suspect that Israel is confident, whether that confidence will be misplaced or whether it will be accurate, that it can contain whatever violence occurs in the West Bank. I mean, Israel has been coping with violence in the West Bank that's been slightly different. Well, not slightly, that's been quite different from Gaza and Lebanon. I mean, Gaza and Lebanon, you have established existing terrorist organizations. In the West Bank, you have collections of young men that have been become fed up with Hamas and Palestine Islamic Jihad, fed up with Fatah and Al-Aqsa martyrs, and basically on their own are carrying out attacks. And But 
they're less coordinated, they're more disjointed. And there's probably a confidence on the IDF's part that it can contain and control that. I mean, again, reality has a way of sometimes you know, proving those assumptions different, but I would say that's the operable assumptions at this moment. Is that confidence, do you think, grounded in reality? What are the capabilities for the Israel Defense Forces to be fighting simultaneously in Gaza, confronting potentially a new uprising in the West Bank, and then on the northern border with Lebanon? That's precisely why I think we have to entertain the possibility of a preemptive strike to right. attempt to the greatest extent possible to neutralize Hezbollah's military potential in southern Lebanon. I mean, that you, you've hit the nail on the head why I think that's a possibility. I don't know which scenario will play out, but I think that's one that we have to take into account because as the old adage goes, you know, wars are easy to start and difficult right. to control. I think Hamas is learning that from October 7th. Right. So for that reason, anyone engaged in war is going to try to get the greatest advantage possible before committing ground forces in hopes of minimizing the loss of people on the ground. Can we look at Hezbollah in a, in a bit more detail here and just unpack I mean, what are their key considerations and interests at this point? Are there reasons that they would and would not want to play a more significant role here? Well, the would play a significant role, I think, is baked into their DNA, in fact. Uh, I haven't been to the Hezbollah headquarters in Beirut, but I'm told by people who have, including uh, some former students, for example, that there's a huge mural that says the, the road to Jerusalem leads through Lebanon. And Hezbollah has always maintained that they are there to support the resistance against Zionism and then colonialist imperialist occupiers. You know, So Hezbollah has long had a vested role in the Palestinian-Israeli conflict and has long followed the lead of the various Palestinian groups that it has had very close relations with since the early 1990s. Uh, Israel and what in 1992 was seen as sort of a, a masterful stroke of counterterrorism, uh, deported 415 Hamas and Palestine Islamic Jihad leaders in the middle of winter to a hillside in, in Lebanon. And it turned out to have backfired tremendously because firstly, those leaders made contact with and forged very close relations with Hezbollah. I don't think it's entirely coincidental that within a few years, Hamas and PIJ were launching suicide attacks, much like uh, Hezbollah had pioneered in Lebanon in the previous uh, decade. Those very close ties have remained. And of course, Hezbollah's main patron is Iran, who also has very close relations with Hamas and Palestine Islamic Jihad, according to the U.S. Department of State. Iran gives $100 million at minimum a year to those groups. So they're all you know, mixed in together. They all see a common enemy, which is, is Israel. They have all vowed to defeat the Zionist state. And therefore, that commonality means that despite a lot of the mythology of the Middle East, that Sunni and Shia, for example, never cooperate, that they're blood enemies. I mean, we see that that's, that's not the case. Because of course, Hamas and Palestine Islamic Jihad are Sunni groups Whereas Hezbollah and Iran are Shia, they've enjoyed you know three decades of very close relations and close cooperation. Indeed, you know weaponry is being found in Israel: uh, AK-47s, RPGs, artillery shells that have North Korean markings. The logical assumption is that the conduit for those would have been Iran. So Iran does play a very active role. You mentioned the the war in two thousand and six. What are the lessons that Hezbollah took from that, and how have their capabilities really increased since then? 
Well, it depends how you look at it, but I think Hezbollah won. That was the big lesson right. they took right. forward. I mean, don't forget, too, at the beginning of that war, Nasran Hasrallah, the Hezbollah secretary general, was criticized throughout the region for his adventurism, for provoking this conflict that lasted for 34 days. But by the end of it, the fact that Hezbollah had withstood the assaults of the Israel Defense Forces, both on the ground and the Israeli Air Force, from the air enhanced Hezbollah's stature and Nasrallah's stature uh, immeasurably. I would say the situation now, at least from the Israeli point of view, is even more unappealing than it was in 2006. Hezbollah, I think by any conservative estimate, has at least 10 times more rockets and missiles than they had in 2006. Some of the rockets are fire and forget. I mean, these katushas that you set up very quickly and launch and have really no guidance systems. They're like the the buzz bombs of World War II that at the end of the war terrorized London, the V1s and V2s. I mean, they're very similar because you can't predict where they're going to land. But in addition to that, now Hezbollah from both Iran and Syria has acquired long-range missiles with sometimes in excess of a 75-kilometer range, and also that have far greater accuracy. They have between an estimated 130,000 to 150,000 of these missiles. So it would overwhelm the Iron Dome very quickly, as in fact Hamas's thousands of rockets did in the early days of, 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 of the current war. And that goes back to my point earlier of why you could see, as we were told people in the Israeli cabinet are advocating for some preemptive strike against Hezbollah, so that the first actual Israeli response may not be in Gaza, but logically could just as well be in Lebanon. And what would be the likely response to that? How do you see Hezbollah and how do you see Iran responding to a preemptive strike? Well, I think from Israel's point of view, they hoped that that would send a very powerful deterrent message so that they wouldn't become more involved because Israel would be prepared at this very dire situation where at minimum Israel faces a three-front war. The danger of Israel escalating, I think the Israeli cabinet is hoping, would be sufficient perhaps to introduce a degree of sobriety, let's say, on the northern border where I don't think it would be completely quiet, but that it would not escalate as it did in 2006. Uh, whether that will happen again, I mean, these these are the kinds of gambles that uh, that decision makers and military strategists make. I mean, no one goes to war thinking they're going to lose, and they try to have the best possible plan. If that doesn't happen, if we don't see the preemptive strike from Israel, but we do see this ground assault that appears to be imminent on Gaza, is there a danger that that would then bring Hezbollah and potentially other actors in once they see, I and mean, we're mm-hmm. already seeing terrible violence every day in Gaza. But once a ground assault starts, could that trigger a a process of escalation? Well, you've hit the nail on the head when you said other actors, because that's something we haven't talked about. And at least from what I'm monitoring and observing, almost without exception, every Salafi jihadi terrorist group, and I'm talking about both Al-Qaeda and ISIS and their respective franchises and branches, have all uh, declared support for Hamas and have threatened to intervene. And there are signs of them mobilizing to become involved in this. Now, whether they can actually make it through Turkey or through Syria, perhaps, I think it would be very hard for them to get through Egypt to Gaza or to actually attack Israel physically across one of the borders. That remains to be seen. But the potentiality of terrorism on a global scale directed against whatever Israeli and Jewish assets these terrorists could reach. But also, one has to say, the United States would be a target. And given the very 
unqualified and fulsome support that Britain, France, Germany, and Italy offered on the third day of this crisis. It's conceivable that diplomatic, military, commercial, even civilian tourist or business targets could also be threatened by this array of other terrorist groups that are not co-located in the region itself that aren't at the moment on Israel's borders, but could try to reach them or could open up multiple other terrorist fronts. So we're in a very, I think, unstable and dangerous situation. I've studied terrorism for almost 50 years now, and I'll make two observations for that period. One is that terrorists are always the consummate opportunists in the sense if they can shine some of the limelight on themselves and their causes, if they can demonstrate their relevancy and importance, they're always going to attach themselves to another issue and take advantage of that opportunity. And also, especially in the Middle East, the biggest enemies of terrorists are not the hardliners on the other side. It's the moderates and those who wish for peace. And what terrorists have sought to do, and I would argue this is the story of Lebanon, since uh, the 1980s, certainly, is that they believe that they can create chaos and insecurity through their violence. And they're confident that eventually they will be able to fill that vacuum and come out on top. And when you're making calculations like that, you're just introducing on purpose a very volatile environment that it's very difficult to predict what the end game will be. After the break, we'll talk more about how the US could get drawn into another Middle East conflict. If you've subscribed to The New Statesman, you can get all our episodes ad-free on The New Statesman app. You can get it on both iOS and Android. Just search for New Statesman on the App Store or Google Play Store. We'll be back in a couple of minutes. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. How do you see and and view the role the U.S. has played so far? I mean, you mentioned Biden in this unprecedented trip to literally embrace Netanyahu. I think we have seen a moderation from the initial position of sort of, you know, 100% stand with Israel, no qualifications on, on the right to defend itself to, in recent days, cautioning Israel not to be consumed by rage, as the U.S. was after 9-11. And we understand these sort of back-channel conversations and, and trying to question and trying to provoke discussion in, in, in Israel itself about what are the end goals here? What is the plan for the day after? What does a victory look like in these circumstances? But is there a risk involved with positioning the US so front and center alongside Israel at this point that potentially brings the US into a conflict on the ground in some of the scenarios that you mentioned there where then it's US assets or it's US targets that are being brought into this. In one respect, the United States has already been dragged into this because there's at least 13 Americans, American citizens that are held hostage by Hamas or Palestine, Islamic Jihad, or by other groups. And also, I'd point out something that has not been widely reported, but I believe is quite accurate, is that an ISIS flag was found at Kibbutz Aza, 
And of course, ISIS has a franchise in the Sinai. Now, Hamas and PIJ breached the border fence in five places, and it wasn't only their fighters clad in like black fatigues and black combat webbing that came across the border. There were lots of other people, including criminals, who may have seized some of the 200-plus hostages. It's quite conceivable that ISIS was involved, too. So you can imagine why the United States does have a particular interest in this crisis and in the hostages setting aside its, its longstanding relations with Israel. The United States, uh, especially since the withdrawal, and I'll say the shambolic withdrawal from Afghanistan two years ago, in many places of the world, the exhaustion and enervation of over two decades of waging the war on terror convinced many people that the United States itself is weakened and the United States is in decline. Of course, President Biden's predecessor expressed less faith in alliances and less commitment to our relationships with many countries. So part of what's going on now is that the United States is attempt, as it did with Ukraine against uh, the Russian invasion, to demonstrate that it still is the leader of the free world and that the Western liberal values that underpin the West are under assault from totalitarians or authoritarians, which include terrorist groups as well. And that if the United States isn't going to be in the lead, no one else will be. The one thing I would take exception to, not what you said, but what we're hearing from the administration, from President Biden, is that the United States made a lot of mistakes that they regretted in the war on terror. That's certainly true. Invading and occupying two countries was, I don't think anybody will defend that. But at the same time, though, the U.S. did get something right. It was a very costly getting something right, but it kept the United States homeland to this day safe from foreign terrorist attacks of any kind, really, except for ones that were tragic, but nonetheless resulted in single-digit casualties as opposed to 2,000 that were killed on 9-11. But there hasn't been anything remotely like 9-11 or anything remotely like Madrid in March 2004 or London in July 2005 or Paris in November 2015. We did get some things right, and I think that's also what we're trying to impart to Israel, is that you can be successful if you're more prudent. And let's face it, too, terrorism is a strategy of provocation. We're seeing this right now. Hamas wants Israel to do everything that Israel is doing, because every time Israel has launched a ground invasion of Gaza in the past, it has worked out badly for Israel, at least in the international arena. Israel has been more isolated, more condemned. So if terrorism is a strategy of provocation, I think it's incumbent upon decision makers and military strategists everywhere to plan responses that don't dovetail with the terrorist script. Too often in the past, that's what often happens. You respond very emotionally and viscerally. Your population, your public depends on it because, of course, the compact between a government and its citizens is that a government will protect its citizens. And clearly that did not work out at all on October 7th. But that's, I think, as well why President Biden is urging Israel to be cautious. That's different from restraining, and it's different from not supporting them. But it's not stepping into the trap that terrorists everywhere in the world set, trying to provoke this overreaction that feeds the terrorist narrative and in the long term is counterproductive. Let me firstly just commend you on the extraordinarily diplomatic phrasing uh, you offered on President Biden's uh, predecessor, having less faith in alliances. Um, That was masterfully understated. Uh, But you talked earlier about the importance for Israel of restoring deterrence. Is that also to some extent true for the US at a time when successive administrations have demonstrated a real reluctance to commit troops 
abroad while still wanting to be seen as a very solid ironclad ally. Is there a danger here for the US that if it doesn't follow through and if it doesn't stand solidly enough behind Israel, that it will be seen as you know America's days of global leadership are, are over, it issues strong statements, but it's actually not really prepared to get involved in, in the way that it once was. Absolutely. Especially coming on the heels of Ukraine, where there are many right. people in the United States that are complaining that we're much too lavish in our support for Ukraine. But there are others arguing that we need to ramp it up and be even more aggressive because a war of attrition in the long run plays into Putin's hands and into Russia's hands that it can bleed Ukraine to death. So no, absolutely, I think the United States is trying to make a statement, not just about the United States being the leader of the free world, but also about the free world and about the values that we hold in democracies that we're going to defend them at a time when many people doubt that. I mean, I, th I would argue that was clearly a factor in Putin's decision to invade Ukraine. He didn't think that the United States and the West would have the stomach to do anything about it. It may also figure in China's calculus, in its saber-rattling and some of its more aggressive moves towards Taiwan. So this is why the issue that I think animates the United States and the White House right now, in fact, goes beyond Israel and goes beyond the Middle East and Gaza, but is really this assertion that the United States, as tired as it may have been after 20 years of fighting these wars on terrorism, is not surrendering its role as the leader of the free world, and that if it did, that the West would be even more vulnerable then. Let me ask you one final question, as I know we're getting a bit short on time, but I feel journalists in these situations are, are very good at offering critiques and saying where everybody is going wrong and, and why the, the strategy we're seeing is ill-advised. But what would be a better strategy at this point? If you were advising the war cabinet in Israel, what would you be urging them to do going forward? I mean, these are real world issues where lives are at stake. I think that one has to always respond soberly and rationally. I think terrorists are always trying to get their opponents to play checkers, you know, checkers or drafts, as you say, in the United Kingdom. Right. I mean, this is a very kinetic type of game. It's very simple. You're jumping over and eliminating opponents, whereas you have to be playing chess, especially in a, as complex and complicated and volatile region as the Middle East. You have to be absolutely thinking of the second, third, and fourth order effects. That's something that I think is said in theory, but rarely materializes in practice. But because of everything we've been discussing, the fact that something that happens in Gaza can have profound repercussions, not only in Lebanon or not only on the West Bank, not only with Iran, but also with this panoply of jihadi groups, Salafi jihadi groups, Sunni groups, but also Shia militias. I mean, there's been an uptick last week in attacks from various uh, Shia militias allied with Iran against U.S. targets in Syria and Iraq and also offshore against U.S. Navy vessels uh, in the Red Sea and Yemen. So I would say that whatever you're planning, think ahead two, three, four moves from this and understand that every action, as physics teaches us, has a reaction. But with terrorists, you have to be sure that you're achieving what is attainable and attainable in a reasonable period of time as well. No one, even the Israeli population, I would argue, are not up for a reoccupation of Gaza. And as the United States, I think, has been trying to extricate itself from the Middle East, as we see now unsuccessfully. And even that's not completely true, because, of course, 
I would argue one of the levers for the October 7th attacks was the landmark potential Saudi recognition of Israel and hand in glove with that because the United States was encouraging and superintending it, a Saudi US defense pact, which would have isolated Iran, of course, which would not suit Iran's agenda. The United States cannot withdraw from the Middle East. And it's really, I think, helping Israel and the United States too, thinking of those knock-on effects and the repercussions, because without thinking of those, we will be headed towards a path to disaster and for escalation that I think no one wants. On that somber but very wise note, let me say thank you so much to Bruce Hoffman for joining us. And thank you for listening. Follow the New Statesman podcast on your podcast app to make sure you get new episodes as soon as they're released. You can also watch video from this podcast on our YouTube channel. Just search YouTube for The New Statesman. You've been listening to The New Statesman podcast with me, Katie Stallard, and my guest, Bruce Hoffman. Anoush and the team will be back on Thursday with their analysis of the latest in British politics. This episode was produced by Chris Stone. Hello, Freddie here. I want to tell you about a new way you can support the New Statesman's independent journalism. Every morning I send out Morning Call, our daily newsletter covering everything you need to know about British politics. It's free to sign up, plus for just £3 a month, you'll get a recommended daily piece of ours sent to you in full, plus exclusive polling analysis from Ben Walker, a weekly update from Will Dunn, and our featured piece on Sundays. If you enjoy this podcast, you'll love Morning Call. Head to morningcall.substack.com and subscribe now. Trust in politics is broken. So can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts.